Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of June 2022, and this month is our VHS cover art event month. Essentially, what we've been doing from week to week is selecting the films that we would like to review uh, based solely on the strength of their VHS box art. Uh, so these are, I guess, like childhood memories of both myself and my regular co-host Kyle uh, that we're working from here. Memories of uh, walking up and down the aisles of ye old video store back in the day. Uh, you may have noticed it's just me this time around. Uh, both Kyle and I had some real shit going on, like some real life shit going on this week. So uh, I'm recording this very hastily in between a couple of engagements. So this is going to be a very short episode. And on top of that, it's also going to be a solo affair. So if you're not down for that, uh, feel free to click the off button now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this week, it just so happens that I had the pick. Um, and the film that I selected uh, for us, or i.e. myself, I guess, or, was Underworld from 1985, uh, directed by George Pavlou, who I actually hadn't bothered to look into what else he had directed. But, ah, okay, that all makes sense. Uh, I will come back to that in a second. But yes, the film in question is uh, Underworld, not the uh, Kate Beckinsale headline series of uh, vampire and werewolf films, uh, Directed by, I think, mostly by her husband, uh, Len Wiseman. Um, I don't actually know what he's been up to lately. Her, her as well, for that matter. I should check in on that. But anyway, this is a totally different underworld. And in fact, uh, it is also known by a separate title, Transmutations, uh, as I understand that to be its uh, international title. And uh, this is not a film that carries an especially strong footprint uh, both in the States or overseas in its native UK, as far as I understand. It's a little bit of a underseen film. Well, no, it's not underseen. It's not very good, unfortunately. But, spoiler alert. But it's it's a, it's not even a cult film. It's just a small horror film that uh, probably had some hype behind it, but as far as I understand, has never really found an audience. But um, this is from 1985, and... Uh, I remember distinctly spotting this at, a, I think it was Blockbuster, of course, in the uh, the horror aisle when I was walking up and down the aisles as a very young boy. And uh, the cover for this, looking at it as an adult, it's almost kind of silly. Like, it, it doesn't quite work. Like, there's a combination of what, what appears to be uh, illustrated or uh, painted elements combined with uh, a live actor wearing heavy prosthetic appliances, heavy makeup effects and whatnot. Um, and it's not only that, it's also false advertising, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But um, as a child, I, this image was very frightening to me. I don't know what it was, but I, I had that kind of a reaction that I don't know if everybody can relate to this, but sometimes when you're a little kid, or at least when I was a little kid, uh, you do that thing where you'd go, ah, and you'd be, like, freaked out a little bit by something, and you'd, like, physically go through the pantomime of, like, trying to shy away from it or, like, turn your head away or cover your eyes or something, but then you keep finding excuses to, like, go back to it, and then you go, ah, all over again, then you, like, run around in a circle, maybe puke a little bit or something, and then you come back to it and go, ah, and then your parents are just looking at you, like, 
what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, clearly you don't like that, but for some reason you keep doing it. I, I don't understand this dynamic, but whatever whatever gets you your jollies. Try not to puke. Um, but yeah, I, for whatever reason, uh, this cover art uh, really stuck with me over the years, such that um, when we first started doing the podcast, uh, Catching Up on Cinema, when, when Kyle and I first started working together, um, this topic, this uh, VHS cover art uh, topic, has been something we've been kicking around for a long time. So around the time we started the show, I actually tracked down, like I, I backtraced the actual title of the film because I never actually knew what it was called. Uh, I just remembered the image. And I think I like typed into Google way back in the day, like horror film, like ugly man, woman in bottle or something. <laughs> and uh, I don't think there are that many covers that, that combine those elements. So um, I'm sure it wasn't that hard. I'm sure I wasn't drawing from that many search results. Um, but actually, that's a, a strong candidate for one of those uh, doll E uh, search memes that's been going around lately. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's a... It's apparently like an AI program or an image search program that you you type in a string of words and it, it gives you a visual representation of a search engine's uh, interpretation of the words. So it pulls from all the corners of the internet to assemble an image, like a custom created image, uh, just based on the words you insert into it. It's It's been going around a lot. I'm sure you've seen it, even if you don't know what it was. But yeah, uh, ugly man, woman in bottle is something I should probably try. Uh, I'll probably use that as like a promotional image for this episode. <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, going through that Google search, I actually was able to discover um, what the film was called. It's called Underworld in this country. Uh, it's, it's actually a UK production, so it's... Uh, as far as I know, it's called transmutations over there. But um, in doing like two seconds of digging, there's a couple of interesting things that that come out of uh, cert- like looking up this film. And the 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 first major one is uh, Clive Barker uh, is credited as one of the writers. Um, and in 1985, Clive Barker was kind of a hot property. Um, Clive Barker was he, had, as far as I understand, gotten the uh, the, the seal of approval from Stephen King. He had gotten the attaboy and was being pushed as, quote, like the new face of horror. Um, as far as I understand, like his, his readership and, and uh, his sales figures were outrageous. Like he was incredibly successful. But in terms of like uh, household name status, I don't know that he ever ever took the took the crown from the king. Haha. <laughs> um but Clive Barker's name carries quite a quite a bit of weight uh, in the world of media, and in 1985, I'm I'm sure that was a hell of a get for the studio. And uh, on that note, there's also uh, some interesting elements of the production. Well, not super interesting, but this movie is not very good. I've said that before, so I'm 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 working with what I got. Um, but one of the interesting things about it was that, as far as I understand, this was Clive Barker's entry into the world of film. Um, and he is in, in conversation with the man. Like, if you've seen interviews with the guy, uh, he is an avid fan of film. Like, like he's, he's an enthusiast. Uh, he has an extensive background and wealth of knowledge uh, about the craft of the art of filmmaking. Uh, so when he would later go on to do films of his own, such as Hellraiser, uh, he, 
I don't exactly think he was coming at it like as a complete novice. Like I, I feel like he he had some connection to the world of film, um, both as an outside observer, but also serving as you know writer uh, for shit films like this. <laughs> but but I do think it's noteworthy that this film just happens to be the first of his his dealings in the world of film and. Uh, it's really worth noting that that Barker, um, much like Stephen King and a lot of other popular authors, uh, is very much a, a multimedia personality. Um, as far as I understand, he's a huge fan of comic books. I don't know if he's written that many, but he's certainly supervised the creation of many. Uh, he's done a, a handful of video games, some of which are very, very good. As far as I remember, Undying was quite good, but Jericho was total fucking shit. Um, and there's a lot of interesting stories about the production of both of those. But um, And as far as I know, he also has a, a, a some form of visual art background. Uh, if not illustrating, then most certainly painting. As far as I know, he's a prolific painter. But, um, but yeah, humble beginnings for him when it comes to film. And uh, when I mentioned the director's name, George Pavlou, um, what jumped out at me was like I, I hadn't bothered to look him up before recording, but I, I noticed right away, ah, uh, he also did Rawhead Rex, uh, which as far as I know was from the same studio uh, and of course is based on a, a story written previous uh, by Clive Barker. Um, so I guess George Pavlou was assigned the the, uh, the Clive Barker account or something in his, his early film career, but um the little bit of detail that I learned about the production of this film is that, um, one, Clive Barker's not not a fan of it. Uh, he has very little to say about it. In fact, he, uh, in the interviews that I saw with him, he actually struggled to remember the name of it. Um, he's not proud of it at all, but uh, probably the most uh, interesting detail that came out of those interviews was uh, apparently the film, uh, the whole production was greenlit on the promise that the film was to be a musical. Now, I'm not positive. I'm, I'm not going to bother looking this up, so I'm going to choose deliberately to talk directly out my ass. Um, but I seem to remember, uh, I think it was Walter Hill's Streets of Fire uh, made a really big splash um, internationally. Uh, I can't remember if that would have come before or after this, but I have to assume that maybe something like that had something to do with uh, green lighting a project like this an unusual project like this but then again the mid 80s there there were a handful of other like major musicals going around so maybe it was just in the air or something plus it was the it was the mtv era you know that like it was the the wrestle rock connection up over in uh the wwf back in the day so uh mixing your your soundtrack with your film was was a a good way to like cross pollinate business and whatnot. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. But yeah, apparently this was not conceived as a horror film initially. Apparently it was supposed to be a musical and Clive Barker, AKA the co-writer of the film wasn't really aware of that until they were already kind of rolling. And apparently the, the producers and him were, were butting heads constantly because he, apparently was asked to come onto the production to write a horror film. Um, and then when they started production, they told him, oh no, like nobody told you it's supposed to be a musical. So he was flabbergasted at that, but you know, the job got done. So 
and now he can wash his hands of it, I guess. But um, I may as well read a plot summary for this one because I'm, honestly, I'm kind of struggling to recall it. So I'm, I'll, I'll give you the official plot summary from the IMDb. Uh, so Underworld, 1985, directed by George Pavlou and of course written by Clive Barker. Uh, when high-class hooker Nicole is kidnapped from her brothel, rich businessman Hugo Motherskill hires her ex-love Roy Bain to find her. Um, interesting names, uh, such that I actually took a second to check to see if they were based on uh, characters from uh, Barker's like wealth of fiction uh, up, up to 1985. As far as I know, they're all original characters, but uh, yeah, uh, that's our plot summary. And uh, what follows, I'm not going to do a beat by beat for this one. I don't have the time, nor do I have the energy, honestly, because this this movie is not a whole lot to write home about. But um, I will say this much, uh, Clive Barker is no stranger to catching up on cinema. Uh, Kyle and I covered uh, Lord of Illusions uh a couple of years ago that was that was a really good episode you should definitely give it a listen uh, i i seem to remember having a lot of fun with that one and part of the fun that comes with it is just the uh the barker isms uh that come hand in hand with virtually any product that he touches um he he definitely has a vibe he definitely has a brand uh that works its way into pretty much everything it works on um and i can i can appreciate that i i like when an artist has a signature when when you can kind of hear the voice of the author coming through the work or or coming through the aesthetics and whatnot um and this film while not exactly while not a quality film by any means and uh while not especially strong from a narrative standpoint uh there is i will say uh, quite a bit of subtext at work um that seems very relevant to to any any Barker production, um, and what I mean by that is uh, there's a there's a film of his called Nightbreed uh, that, it, as far as I recall, he actually directed that. It would come out several years after this, well, a few years after this one, uh, at the point in his career when he was allowed to direct films. Um, Hellraiser, as far as I know, was the first film that he worked on as the director, and part of the part of the reason for that was uh the the bad taste in his mouth from having worked on films like underworld and rawhead rex uh, he did not like um how other people handled his ideas um so the idea was hey i'm i'm this hot shit writer um if you if you want my name to stamp on your poster to sell your damn movie um the least you could do is give me the the courtesy of allowing me a chance to actually manufacture the product from the ground up myself um and hellraiser say what you will about it uh it's not a perfect film by any means but it is visually striking um and it has an energy and a passion uh in it that even if the the narrative is not particularly strong at times uh even if the characters are are a little <laughs> a little big a little broad um like i said it has an energy it has a vibe to it it has a look and a feel that is uh i think very very solid uh, I, I quite enjoy uh, the first two Hellraiser films. The rest of them, not really. Although, although I think, uh, was it Bloodline? I think I seem to remember that one being kind of fun. That's the one that, if memory serves, it ends in a space station that turns into a box. That was kind of cool. Um, and then, of course, there's the, the, I think it's Hell World. That it's like 
Hellraiser on the internet, and uh, a very, very young Henry Cavill is in there. So if you want some like trivia factoids or something, I guess if you want some brownie points on to put on your belt, you can you can go reference that one. But um, those first two Hellraiser films, I I find a lot to enjoy, mostly on an audiovisual level. Uh, Christopher Young's score uh, for both those films is fantastic, and of course the the special effects, uh, the stop motion, the second one in particular for me personally, um, really striking stuff. Um, but anyway, Nightbreed, uh, to me feels like what this film was probably meant to be in the first place, uh, because Barker in interviews, like what little he has to say about this film underworld. Um, he described it as, uh, a schlocky monsters versus mobsters script. That's, that's what he wrote. He knew it was schlocky, but that was kind of the point. It's meant to be, you know, a little bit campy, a little bit silly. Um, and Nightbreed, in a lot of ways, kind of feels like that. Nightbreed, I've, all, I've, I've often thought of as, like, I don't know, like a an X-Men movie with without the branding, I guess. Um, and that's, that's seemingly a, a concept that comes up in a lot of Barker, like, especially in his film work, this, this idea of... Uh, communities or worlds dwelling just below the surface and not only that uh, ostracized or othered people that in in his film work in particular these are obviously supposed to be you know analogies for people that we 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 encounter and we we love and we know in our daily lives Um, but in these you know fantastique as he would say uh, realms of fiction they're represented as quote like monsters or or others like subhuman things um so there's a shit ton of subtext that i don't feel especially uh well qualified to explore by myself in particular um but i will say this much even in this film that is not particularly strong there's there's a lot of metaphors and there's a lot of symbolism that are really easy to spot um in particular the the uh titular transmutations that are represented in this film uh are very evocative of like lesions associated with aids or uh uh, other heavy drug use uh things of that nature uh it's 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 actually one of the weaker parts of the movie unfortunately because i get what they're doing from a symbolic standpoint unfortunately the cover of this film as i'm sure to some extent, every film we'll review this month uh, does, uh, does in fact lie to you a little bit, because as far as I recall, um, the the makeup effect that scared me as a child that's pictured on the cover, I don't think that's actually in the film. Like, I I don't think that that character is in the film. I, I, I kept my eyes out because I was very, very curious, but I don't recall seeing anyone that looked exactly like that. Like, there's there's characters that have some of his characteristics, like kind of the, the flared nostrils and the, the sores and stuff, but none of them look as gruesome as that. In fact, um, that's why I say it's, it's one of the weaker parts of the film, is that from a symbolic standpoint, it's there. You see it. You know, you know what you're supposed to be getting out of that. But the quality of the effects never measures up to the cover art. Um, and in fact, like if if you flip the VHS box over, like if you actually look at the back of the box, which is something we really haven't been talking about uh, as of yet uh, this month, um, 
there's even more lies on there because there's a there's a face melting effect at the end of the movie uh, that doesn't go as hard uh, as is represented on the back of this box. Um, I, maybe the film had to be censored or something because uh, what you see on the back of the box is a, is a man with no skin essentially, like like the his face is stripped of its skin, very very similar to I think it's the Frank effect in in the Hellraiser films. Um, but if memory serves in, in the actual film, uh, they catch fire, like they they pull a piece of their face off. Uh, but it never escalates to the point that, that he's completely stripped of all of his skin on his face. Um, so that was a disappointment. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the movie has a noir quality to it as well. Um, as the, the plot summary indicated, it is about a man trying to find uh, a woman that was kidnapped. Um, and that man is often wearing a trench coat in the film. And he's essentially like our, our Deckard from Blade Runner. Uh, I mean, I'm using that as a example off the off the cuff but you if you've seen a noir film if you've seen a hard-boiled detective film you kind of know what you're to expect from that character uh although he has a kind of like pinkish red highlights in his hair which were quite eye-catching and uh it was kind of weird because his performance is very flat like i was i was really weirded out by that where he has this very flashy appearance but he's very matter of fact and pretty straight laced throughout the whole thing um at one point, I actually thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting if, like, a, I don't know, a, an actor with more obvious energy to them, uh, like like a Julian Sands or something, was to play this role? Like, maybe it would have been slightly more engaging. Um, but as it stands, uh, this uh, this actor's Larry Lamb, by the way, uh, who play, plays uh, Roy Bain. Um, I don't recognize him from anything else. Apparently, he's a stage actor. But... Um, the reason why I'm keying in on the, the noir aspect of the film is that um, Lord of Illusions uh, is also basically a detective film in a lot of ways. It has kind of hard-boiled detective vibe to it. Um, so again, this is, I wouldn't call this a trope of, of Barker's filmography or his uh, bibliography, um, but it does seem to be something that he likes. And as I said, he's a student of film, so I wouldn't be surprised if he saw all the classics, like the Maltese Falcon and all that business. Um, so maybe it's just something he likes to incorporate into his stories. Um, but in terms of our cast, uh, <laughs> I will throw out there that uh, Denholm Elliott uh, is top billed in this film. Uh, Denholm Elliott, of course, being the fellow who played uh, Marcus Brody in uh, the Indiana Jones films. And this was post Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, pre last crusade as far as i know uh so it was it was kind of neat seeing him here um i'm not hugely familiar with his uh filmography um but he's always welcome like you just kind of like perk up whenever he's on screen um art malik is here as well uh or maybe it's art malik um as a character named fluke who wears uh, sunglasses throughout the entire film and uh, uh he kind of reminded me of uh masaya kato from uh from the the film drive not not the ryan gosling drive the uh the mark DeCoscos drive uh, if you've seen that film you know you know the wardrobe and you know what i'm alluding to but uh the reason why i single him out is that uh i know him as the villain from true lies and uh, i personally have not seen him in other things but he never removes his sunglasses and yet somehow that the i think it was the height of his forehead combined with his hairline that tipped me off. I was like, I think I know who that is. And 
uh, it's like, no, that's not John Cazale. That's that's Art Malik because John Cazale only did uh, Oscar-winning films. And uh, beyond that, the only other actor that really jumped out at me was uh, Stephen Burkoff, uh, and that would be because around this time, around 1985, uh, he was one of the go-to uh, villain actors uh, in American cinema. Uh, he was the chief antagonist of Rambo 2, uh, or excuse me, um, Rambo colon First Blood Part 2, um, as well as Beverly Hills Cop, if memory serves. Um, he's he's a delightfully hammy performer, and uh, he only has a few scenes in this one, but he definitely swings for the fences every time he's on screen. It was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I unfortunately, I don't really have a whole lot to say about this film. It would be a lot... There'd be a lot more that Kyle and I could get into, like me talking out my ass alone. Like I, it's a little difficult for me to talk at length about some of the subtext in this film, but it's it's there. Uh, there's definitely a lot of stuff going on with I don't know people on the fringes of society and uh, I don't know people profiting from their suffering in the form of uh, drugs being pushed on them and whatnot. Um, in terms of effects work, as I said, the the cover is a little bit of a lie. None of none of the makeup effects in the film really measure up to that one. And uh, not only that, when you get to the final reel of the film, uh, it gets a little batshit crazy. Uh, some things happen without any real cause or reason. Uh, it's all welcome because the film does have long stretches where it can be quite boring at times. It doesn't have a very solid pace to it. There is a lot of farting around from scene to scene. Like it's supposed to be like a investigation process like you're supposed to be watching people sneak into places they're not supposed to be going and like gathering evidence or finding clues but every single one of those scenes just drags on and on and on and doesn't offer any real strong revelations or any grant you any real sort of traction in terms of your engagement and in terms of pushing the plot forward which i guess brings me to a point that i should have made earlier is that uh this movie goes seven minutes uh, before it has a single line of dialogue, um, and not only that, it begins with <laughs> it begins with what appears to be a, a punk rock putty patrol, like complete with a blah, 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 blah. like they're not making the noises, but they're doing the pantomime, like they got their wiggly arms and stuff, and they're sneaking around like Foot Clan members or, or putty patrol guys. They're even coming out of the sewers, which which it's it's just surreal like it, it feels like it's before its time like ninja turtles wouldn't become a cartoon for another two years and wouldn't become uh, a film for another five but uh here we go we got some punk rock foot clan members <laughs> coming out coming out of the sewers in the streets of the uk but that's our opening but then we transition into like what's supposed to be like this this high society party uh with with what appears to be like an international cast of rich people um, but the whole thing is shot in ultra slow motion, and it it's completely devoid of energy or meaning, such such that like you're the most interesting thing on the screen during during like four minutes of screen time is just the the production credits. It's truly bizarre filmmaking, but maybe it points to the film's potential origins as a uh, as a musical, um, or at least a uh, music driven experience, because uh, that's actually. Probably the biggest positive I can give to this film um, is the uh, is the soundtrack, and, and I will actually go ahead and highlight them here because I had never heard of them, um, but I may actually go back and check them out because I was I was 
really impressed with this aspect of the film. Uh, so the, the score and a couple of the songs, there's only a couple of songs in the whole film, they kind of bookend the production, uh, is by a band called Freur, uh, F-R-E-U-R, and apparently they're Welsh, so they're from Wales. Um, and yeah, they're credited as both doing the music and a couple of songs for the film, and uh, it's it's kind of like a, a new wavy uh, mid-80s synth vibe, uh, along with a couple of of instrumental rock tracks and damn it's a uh, as the kids would say uh, they got, they have some bangers uh, there are a couple of tracks on this score that are really really good um but uh as tends to be the case in in not so good films like this uh, you run into the problem where uh the energy and the the creativity and the enthusiasm being put into the score kind of overrides the energy of what's transpiring on the screen. Uh, so you have this wonderful back quote background music accompanying scenes of like very little <laughs> like like this film attempts to have action in its closing moments and there's like a fight scene in the middle which by the way does have a scene where someone gets their their testicle squeezed. That was that was pretty great. Like it's a fight between two grown men and one of them without hesitation grabs the other one right by the sack and then bum rushes them it's like you know in a life or death struggle like it's kind of amazing we don't see that happen more often in film so you know all credit to the production somebody had their head on straight when they were choreographing that scene but but yeah this this film does have like some pyrotechnics and and like gunfire at the end like there there is some gunfighting that happens towards the end of the film um but it's not choreographed with any real enthusiasm or energy it's not very creative uh there's no juicy squibs or anything for the most part it's largely pretty tame um but then you have this really awesome score playing over it that like occasionally maybe tricks you into thinking it's more exciting than it is but then like you hang around in that scene 30 seconds too long and you're like oh oh no this this music is going balls out but these 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 stunt performers and and these lighting crews they're 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 not and for the most part like the film does have like a it has an aesthetic to it like they attempt to dress some sets in particular the the titular underworld locations like they they do a lot with like neon tube lighting and it has like a a blue shade tossed over many many scenes there's a little bit of like a gothic atmosphere that's evocative of like a classic hammer horror films and some of the underworld sequences uh, but some of the other locations literally feel like, I don't know, Clive Barker or one of his friends like asked to borrow one of their friend's apartments or or homes for the day so they could shoot there. Uh, so it's it's a little inconsistent. It has a chintzy vibe to it. Um, and what's more, like the camera movement and camera placement in the film is largely pretty pedestrian. Like there's, there's not a whole lot going on. Um, and that's, you know probably the film's biggest sin is that it just doesn't doesn't have a whole lot for you to grab onto it it doesn't give you many reasons to get invested in it and every every area where it it should have been strong or it needed to be strong in order to to create a more memorable more engaging experience it it unfortunately falls very very short aside from the music um so you're you're promised a woman in a bottle and an ugly disfigured man on the cover uh, there are disfigured people in the film. Unfortunately, they're not, well, not unfortunately, but they are not portrayed as monstrous. Uh, they're 
entirely sympathetic for the most part like i mean there's one guy who apparently like ods or something on the super devil juice that everybody's hooked on in this film um and he gets lewis tully eyes where they rotoscope like red over his irises it's kind of funny but he looks like tyler Maine. like that's the extent of his facial deformity he just looks like tyler Maine uh with low with lewis tully eyes and like a pig man nose um and he's violent he doesn't succeed in killing anyone, as far as I know. Uh, he just kind of hurts some people. But beyond that, uh, this scary pig man on the cover, uh, he's not really, he's not in the film. Uh, there are no scary monsters in the film. They're just sad, pitiful creatures that are uh, proven to be far less monstrous than the people who are uh, kind of tyrannizing them. Um, there is no woman in a bottle. Uh, there is a woman who gets kidnapped. Uh, by the way, the character's name is Nicole. <laughs> the reason I say it that way is because when she appears on screen, one of one of the two songs in the film is it begins with the line Nicole, you're beautiful. <laughs> it's, I'm sorry if I sound like Paul Bearer, but that's basically what happens. The the movie like i guess that's the movie singing her a lullaby or something it declares her to be beautiful uh right before she tries to go to bed and tyler main uh pops in there to uh abduct her but yeah uh the film is largely a letdown um i'm not surprised that uh clive barker has very little to say about it but hey you got everybody's got to start somewhere and uh hey you know uh whoever was in charge of the marketing uh I don't know how this film film did uh, on the home video market, but you know, I I bet a couple of people rented it and didn't do like I did as a child and just like screamed at it and ran away. Uh, speaking of uh, home video, by the way, apparently uh, this was uh, released uh, at one point by Vestron Video, uh, who, as far as I understand, um, they're uh, I don't know who is publishing the DVDs or who's uh, distributing them uh, blu-rays excuse me um, but the vestron video collection has been an ongoing project uh, for the past several years um, so i'm actually very curious uh, if this will be a candidate uh, for a vestron video re-release at some point uh, i was not aware that this was a vestron release but um, i guess i'll have to tell my good buddy brad from the cinema speak podcast who uh, is a proud owner of every Vestron video Blu-ray that currently exists. Uh, we'll have to warn him. Uh, Transmutations uh, slash Underworld. Um, you can go ahead and put that one in the backlog, bud, because uh, it's not. It's it's just not very good. <laughs> um, but you know, now I know what it is. Uh, that that was kind of the whole point of this month uh, is to take what we only knew as cover art, uh, because I didn't even have a plot summary to work from. I went into this film. 100% blind, aside from knowing that Clive Barker was involved uh, and the cover art. Uh, so now I now I can put a face to the thing, like like a more fleshed out face to it, I guess, um, to what scared me a little bit as a kid. Um, and very similar to uh, my discussion with Kyle's brother, uh, Nick, uh, about the 1988 uh, remake of The Blob, with another film that a film, not not just cover art, but a film. The cover for that one is also fucking terrifying, by the way. Um, it, it's kind of like purging a demon to some extent. Where the the Blob nineteen eighty eight. Now that I've gone back and I've rewatched it as an adult, uh, it's the scenes that scared me as a kid. They they don't scare me as much. Um, so now I can 
proudly look at the cover for this one and uh, laugh at the fact that not only is it not scary, it's also 100% a total fucking lie because that that scary pig man on the cover is not in the film anyway. Uh, so he exists purely as just a promotional image uh, for a movie that not many people should see because it's frankly not very good. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, this has been my uh, solo review of uh, Underworld, a.k.a. Transmutations from 1985, directed by George Pavlou and, of course, co-written by one Clive Barker. Um, I know this wasn't especially thorough. I was rambling the whole time. Hopefully I made some measure of sense. Um but I got to go. I got some real life shit going on. But anyway, uh, if you would like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias, on the Twitter at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, excuse me, the Twitter is Catching Cinema, at Catching Cinema. Uh, I fucked that one up. Awesome. Uh, and also, uh, our podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. So fucking Google that shit. That being said, thank you so much for listening uh, to this long, rambling, weird-ass episode. Uh, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>